Good evening. Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 10 this evening. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we find ourselves midway through uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. We remember that Jesus is in the final six months of his uh, three-and-a-half-year public ministry. Uh, Within the six-month period, he will end up in Jerusalem and die on the cross to provide the forgiveness for our sins and be buried and rise again on the third day, demonstrating the truthfulness of all that he taught and and his victory over death. And uh, we left off uh, last time in verse 24, And we pick things up in verse 25 in one of the most famous parables of Jesus known as uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, there was a certain lawyer, and he stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit uh, everlasting uh, life? So it is a lawyer. In the United States of America, we have lawyers. They're the brunt of many jokes. Um, and some of the funniest you'll ever hear. So I guess if you're going to be a lawyer, you've got to get a sense of humor on that. But our lawyers are lawyers who are experts in criminal law or experts in civil law. When you read about the lawyers in the Gospels, we're talking about experts in the law, experts in the law of Moses, and that's what he was. And so there were the scribes, the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, there were also the lawyers. They were all subgroups of the Jewish religious uh, establishment. To be a lawyer, this guy was without a doubt a a very, very sharp individual. Uh, Not every uh, Jewish boy could uh, grow up and come under the tutelage of significant rabbis and uh, where they would look and say, this is a life worth in, uh, investing all of this kind of uh, knowledge into. And yet, uh, that is exactly what has happened uh, in his life. And so he comes uh, to Jesus and he poses a simple question to Jesus. It's a huge question, but it's simple. He said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit uh, everlasting life. And one of the things you have to do is, uh, though he is um, uh, dishonest, as we'll see in a moment, in the question that he asks, he's asking it uh, to try Jesus or to test uh, Jesus. But if you do have uh, access to Jesus to ask any single question that you could ask of him, you could hardly choose a better one than the one that he asks. And that is, what do I need to do to attain to everlasting life, to know what is the quality of life I need to live to know that after I leave this life, I will one day uh, end up in heaven. That is the single uh, greatest question that anyone will grapple with uh, in terms of finding the answer to it. And this is the question that he poses uh, to Jesus. It was a subject uh, uh, for discussion among the Jewish religious leaders uh, of that day. Uh, How much do you have to do in order to uh, inherit everlasting life? Uh, Of course, that would become a great religious discussion as it was among the Jews. And you notice that he, he, uh, uh, he poses his question uh, with a supposition. He poses the question with a supposition that you can get into heaven 
by doing. What he doesn't know and what he wants Jesus to chime in on is how much doing do you have to do in order to get into heaven. And that's the problem, isn't it? If you're going to determine that we get into heaven on the basis of doing rather than on the basis of faith, the next great question that you're confronted with is how much doing and what quality of doing must I do in order to merit everlasting life? And so all of the rabbis and all of the scribes and the Pharisees, they all had their ideas concerning this. And the lawyer simply asking Jesus now, uh, what is your view related uh, to this discussion point and, uh, uh, among all of the Jewish religious leaders? And, and so he poses it there um, to Jesus. Now, all of this is, uh, most of us are Christians in this room, and we know that you don't get into heaven by doing. We get into heaven on the basis of faith, trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. It's a gift that God gives to us. But the world that we live in, uh, and, and not only the secular world, but the religious world that we live in, and the overwhelming majority of people who live in this world are not secular atheists and agnostics. This is still a very, very religious world that we live in, and the common denominator of both secularism, if they're concerned about heaven at all, uh, and then the religious world is that you do get into heaven by virtue of doing. And that is, if you were to ask your neighbors or coworkers or whoever you come into contact with, if they believe in the existence of heaven, how do you then one day get there? Typically, they will uh, answer the question by speaking about some amount of, uh, of doing, doing more good than bad in the course of my life, and then you merit getting in. So it's a timeless question as it's uh, 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 posed here. Now, it isn't, an, as I mentioned, an, an entirely honest question. He has uh, posed the question to Jesus by means of uh, testing him. And uh, so here we have a very good question being asked by him, being asked out of a, uh, a bad motive. And uh, he is, uh, uh, because this question was uh, widely discussed by so many people in those days, we don't have many religious uh, discussions that much here in the United States of America anymore uh, in terms of people grappling independent of coming to a church or something and grappling with the questions. But, um, uh, but this was something that people were grappling with and he figured that whatever Jesus gave as an answer to this question, it would alienate other camps and their view related to it. So it's an attempt to uh, divide Jesus' support and popularity, which was running uh, very, very high uh, among the common people at this time. Jesus then answers his question with two questions. How do you like that? Um, and, and that's very, very common in Jewish discussion of anything. And uh, certainly the study of the scriptures. Very often you, you can ask a Jewish person related to the scriptures something and they will come back and their answer will be a question that leads you then toward uh, their answer. Jesus answers uh, with, with two, uh, two questions. He said, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? 
So Jesus, uh, in essence, tells the lawyer that my answer in terms of how to uh, access heaven, in terms of if you want to get into heaven by virtue of doing, then my answer is the same answer as the Bible. So here he's kind of trying to divide his support among the Jewish followers, and he goes right back to the Bible, uh, the the safest ground at all for for circumventing that kind of, of a trap. And he poses the two questions again. What is written in the law, not what is, I don't want to hear what the scribes say or the Sadducees or the Pharisees or Rabbi Hillel or Shimei or what any of them say. What is written in the law, that's all that matters, and what is your reading of it? And so he answered then that question, and he goes to Deuteronomy and Leviticus and answering it, he quotes it verbatim, and he said, uh, here is the answer in terms of doing my way in, in, uh, to heaven. You shall love the Lord your God with all, circle the all in your mind, all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and uh, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And so he encapsulates the two great commandments of the Old Testament and says, this is the way uh, how I see it and, and in terms of quoting the law of Moses for how to uh, get into heaven by doing. And Jesus said to him, you have answered uh, rightly and uh, do this and you will live. I don't know if there, uh, how long the pause was uh, between uh, uh, Jesus' answer and then heading into verse 27, but he, Jesus says essentially, that is an outstanding answer. That is the answer. Gold star, somebody get a gold star and put it on his, uh, on his robe. This is fabulous. It, 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 it's absolutely uh, perfect. You've got to move this guy to the, the head of the class. And, and so uh, you do what you've just told me there in verse 27, and in terms of doing, then you are in. So if a person is interested in getting into heaven by doing, then this is the way that it needs to be done. All a person needs to do is love God with all of their heart, all of their mind, all of their soul, and all of their strength from their, uh, the moment of the birth, their birth until their final breath and love their neighbor as themselves and you're in. Uh, you have reached the standard that's required in order to enter into the perfection uh, of, of heaven. In other words, if you're intent upon getting into heaven by doing uh, then you have to have been absolutely perfect in your dealings with God and with man and never have fallen short in those dealings, not in word, not in deed, not in motive, uh, not in attitude. And if you have lived a life exactly like that, then you can earn everlasting life. All that's required is perfection. That's the, re- the righteousness that's required in heaven. So if you can keep those two commandments in their fullness to perfection, then you'll have a perfect righteousness and you won't have any need for trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and then having his righteousness then imparted to us to qualify us for the environment of heaven and the presence of, of, of God. So the response of the lawyer is an interesting one because he's a, he's a sharp guy. Believe me, this guy's a sharp guy. 
And what Jesus has done to him is dawning on him. He's been outlawed in this. The trap has been turned on him and and he recognizes it. And uh, and so he answers and he, uh, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he's feeling the heat. Why, Why else would you endeavor to justify yourself unless you're feeling the heat in this discussion? Uh, Jesus is perfectly at ease in this. So he does something that lawyers do, whether they are civil or criminal or whether they are religious lawyers. He's going to try and get out of this uncomfortable situation he finds himself in on the basis of a technicality. And so he gloms onto that word neighbor and he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now in doing so, he opens up another area of uh, controversy among the Jews in their religious discussions in those days because there were certain rabbis who taught that the law of Moses, when it commanded to love uh, uh, our neighbor as ourselves, that that included both Jews and Gentiles, all human beings. But there were other uh, Jewish rabbis and leaders who taught that no, this was, only had to do with another Jew, a Jew toward another Jew, and that you didn't have to uh, love Gentiles in, uh, in, the same, uh, in the same way. And so this is uh, how uh, th- they addressed it and, and they de- dealt with it. And so now he is asking Jesus uh, again for uh, what is his stand on uh, this, this nuance of, of the argument. And Jesus answered with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he said, a certain man, he says, a certain man, it's just uh, the everyday man. Uh, This isn't a a Jew or isn't a Gentile. It, It could be either one. It applies to both. So a certain man, he went down from Jerusalem to uh, Jericho. And he fell among thieves, and these thieves stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, uh, leaving him uh, half dead. Uh, to me, one of the, the um, most amazing sights in a trip to Israel is the overlook of this uh, road uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho and from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits, I think, at about an elevation of 2,600 uh, feet above sea level. Uh, Jericho, 800 feet below sea level. So it's quite a, a descent and quite an ascent if you're going in the other direction. And it's kind of a road that's carved out of a, an ancient wadi. And so it rolls kind of like a snake and, and uh, 17 miles of it. And you can come around a corner and be completely surprised by anyone that would be waiting for you to uh, do you harm. And there was so much crime of this kind that, that occurred on that uh, road that the Jews nicknamed it the, the, bloody, uh, the bloody road. Well, these thieves have been extraordinarily uh, uh, cruel. Uh, they not only rob him of whatever he has in terms of monies, but they take his clothes. They take, and in those days, not everybody had a second uh, uh, change of clothes as a part of, of their wealth. And then they proceed to beat him to a pulp and leave him as just this kind of crumpled uh, mass of a human being at, at the side of the road, and then they uh, depart. 
And all of them, had, they'd all walked that road. They, the picture comes up immediately within their mind. And Jesus continued and said, Now by chance a certain priest uh, came down that road, and when he mentions the certain priest, everybody that's listening to him is thinking, He's saved. The, the man, the, the certain man that's been beaten to a pulp, there's a priest coming. He's going to be saved. And if the guy looks through a, a bloodied, swollen eye and he sees in the distance a priest that is approaching, he has to think in his own heart, I'm taken care of. I'm rescued. They'll call in the helicopters and get me to the hospital right away. And so here comes this certain priest came down the road, and when he saw the man, uh, uh, he, he headed straight into avoidance of the problem. And uh, he passed by on the other side. Imagine how your heart would sink related to that. And imagine how uh, the heart of the audience would sink at uh, Jesus' portrayal of the priest. But you know what's interesting about the lawyer and what's interesting about the crowd that's listening to all of this? Nobody protests. And, he's going to, and he is going to characterize uh, the, uh, the Levites in exactly the same way. Nobody jumps up and says, that's the most unfair characterization that uh, I have ever heard of the priests and the Levites. That's not fair at all. You know they're nothing like that. Nobody protests. They knew this is exactly what a priest would do. And a priest was a descendant of, of Aaron, and uh, handled the spiritual activities that were there in the temple, Herod's temple in Jerusalem at that time. He's headed towards Jericho. He's off duty. Uh, I, I mean, he's a priest, he feels, when he's there uh, on duty down at the church or uh, in the, uh, 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 at the temple, but he's off duty. He doesn't have to get I involved in any of this kind of thing. They knew this was an, exactly what the Jewish religious leaders in the system uh, had become. And then by chance a certain, uh, uh, likewise a Levite uh, of the tribe of Levi, they handled the physical things related to uh, the, the temple, but highly esteemed religiously within the nation. When he arrived at the place, he came near to the man and he looked, so he investigated it a little bit, he analyzed it a little bit, and then he also then passed by on the other side. This guy's heart sinks again. I mean, this is, this is the Levite was going to rescue me. Maybe the priest was having a bad day, but the Levite will get me. But both the religious leaders uh, do the same thing ultimately. And then Jesus said, but a certain Samaritan, and Jesus calls the Samaritan a Samaritan. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans didn't think much of the Jews. And at the time that Jesus talks about this, as is recorded in uh, uh, John's gospel, is that, that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans. And Jesus is going to make him the hero of the story because the Samaritan is just a common person. He's a common person. He hasn't gotten caught up and lost into a religious world like the other two uh, did in thinking that their spirituality is based upon how much they know or the position that they hold within Christianity or within Judaism as opposed to what kind of a human being they actually are 
when they run into need in their neighbors. And so a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed by, he came where uh, the certain man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he cried and he wept and he clutched his heart. And he, this, he said, I'm such an empathetic man. I feel his pain. And then crossed the road and went on his way. No, no, when you run into somebody in this kind of condition, uh, you don't judge compassion by an inner emotion. Uh, you do something uh, with it. And so out of that compassion, then he went to the certain man, bandaged his wounds, pouring uh, on oil uh, to soothe the wounds, wine, alcohol in order to uh, disinfect them, set him on his own animal so that he could ride and the Samaritan would walk, brought him to an inn, and then took care of him through the night. His business required that he would continue on the next day, but uh, when he had to depart the next day, he took out two, uh, two denarii, two days' wages, for a, a laboring man. I don't know what you make in two days, but uh, you, can, you can stay in, in a hotel for a number of days with meals, typically, uh, on, uh, on that. And so he gave him, gave that money then to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him, whatever more you spend uh, on him to make him well, it's, put it on my tab. When I come again, I will repay you. And so Jesus then poses the question in terms of uh, uh, define neighbor for me. He said, which of these three do you suppose was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him. And you notice that Jesus calls the Samaritans Samaritans by name. And when he does, and he makes the Samaritan uh, the hero of the story, that's like setting a bomb off in the middle of things. He is no respecter of persons. He will tell anyone and everyone, including me and you, uh, the truth about ourselves and not what people think about us. And so uh, this man can't even begin, the, the easiest answer that he could give is the Samaritan. But he can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. So he says, he who showed uh, mercy on him. And Jesus then said, go thou and uh, do likewise. And so uh, 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 that is the gist of, of, uh, of, uh, of what a, a, a neighbor is. A neighbor is someone who is near me in need. That's my neighbor. That's what he defined it for them. You want that for the religious discussions? You want to tell people where I stand on this? It is anyone that is near you in need, as evidenced by the, the, the Samaritan, the good Samaritan. And one of the things that this uh, passage teaches us, and I, it, it's such an important one from my own heart, and I usually will, will teach this as a, the devotional aspect at that, uh, at that site on a trip to Israel, is that this parable is so important for any of us who've walked with the Lord for any length of time, say five years or more. Because what happens, and especially I think in the Western world, United States of America, is what happens is we come to uh, determine uh, our spirituality based upon how much 
we know spiritually, how much of the Bible we know, and, and knowing the Bible is very important. Rather than judging my spirituality to be based upon how much of the Bible do I know and how much of that then do I put into practice in my daily life. And that was the failure of the priest and the Levite. They knew mountains of theological uh, uh, information and none of it translated into the daily of their life in their interactions with uh, their fellow uh, human being. And so it's good for us to, uh, to ask ourselves uh, that this evening and looking at it, especially the longer we've walked uh, uh, with the Lord. I think I'm at about, um, uh, well, a lot of years at this point, and uh, about 40 years in terms of walking with the Lord and how easy it is to just be an information machine, know all of these things. And then when I'm really forced to stop and ask, when was the last time this translated into caring for someone in a, in a personal, a physical, spiritual, or meaningful way in their lives in the course of my coming and going in life. And if I'm amassing this uh, huge amounts of, of theological knowledge and it isn't translating into that in our lives, then we're not becoming anything remotely like uh, Jesus. And so uh, it, it is such a practical, important uh, warning to us. It is so easy ultimately as Christians, again, especially in the United States of America, but the world has become very small with technology where we can access teaching, we can access learning. You know, I mean, 150 years ago, uh, the, uh, uh, you were going to get three sermons a week tops in any church that you attended. Uh, you'd get a Sunday night, a Sunday morning, and a Wednesday uh, night. And that would be the extent of exposure to, to teaching and learning the Word of God. Now you can listen. There's uh, uncountable thousands of, of teachings on the Internet and, and so much great teaching on the Internet. And we can come to amass all of this, uh, this uh, great knowledge and um, and convince ourselves in kind of that American way that, uh, that we are deeply spiritual by virtue of it and, uh, and cease to have it flowing out of our lives towards our fellow man. And then uh, following these, this, we're told that as it happened, as they uh, went, that, uh, that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named uh, Martha welcomed him into her uh, house. And so uh, he, he comes to what we know from the other Gospels. He comes into the city of Bethany, just about a mile outside of Jerusalem, on the eastern side of, of Jerusalem, just kind of a stone's throw uh, away. And uh, Bethany was a village, as is described here, and there was the home of, uh, of Martha was there, and Martha's the kind of one of the members of that famed trio, the same family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jesus having raised Lazarus from the dead earlier in his, in his public ministry. So he comes to that home. Jesus, uh, in, uh, in his journeys into Jerusalem, uh, in the course of his back and forth from the Galilee down into Jerusalem in those three and a half years of his public ministry, 
uh, he would never necessarily stay in Jerusalem. He would uh, go to Bethany and stay. And, and, uh, and on the final week of his life, when he goes, he knows the cross is coming and there's so much activity going on uh, in, in Jerusalem. He never spends a night in Jerusalem. He always goes to Bethany in order to spend the night there in the home of these who had become his uh, friends. Now, realize that the common people were hearing Jesus gladly at this time, but the outward, uh, uh, the religious establishment was very, very hostile toward Jesus, and it was dangerous at this point in time as a Jew to identify with Jesus publicly. And yet here is Martha, much to be commended. She owns the house, apparently, and her sister and brother live with her, and she opens the house openly for Jesus to come in and uh, to, uh, for hospitality in her home. And so it's a home he would have been very, very familiar with, and, uh, and a, a beautiful, beautiful scene. All of them together, no doubt the disciples, the 12 with him as well. And, and Martha had a sister named Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. And so Jesus comes into this scene. Everybody kind of moves into their different roles after some time passes by. Uh, Martha is, as we'll see in a moment, busy kind of in the kitchen preparing a meal for Jesus. And, uh, and the 12 that are with him, or however many there are, not an insignificant uh, thing considering everything had to be made by scratch. He couldn't order out pizzas. And, uh, and then such a large group of people. So she's in the kitchen doing what she's doing. And then after a time, Mary comes to where Jesus is seated. And then she proceeds to sit at his feet and to talk about the 49ers and the Raiders. No, that's not what she did. Uh, I mean, when you have access to Jesus like this, and we do, uh, she takes and, and sits at his feet because she wants to hear his word. He's... he's imparting uh, uh, spiritual instruction. So this is going on. We don't know how uh, uh, long it went on, but Martha, she was very distracted, we're told, with much serving. So she's very distracted, huffing and puffing in the kitchen, and, uh, and we'll see why in just a moment. So she's just busy as can be, and uh, so much work to do, and so, in, in getting the meal ready and, and everything. And then finally, uh, that's all she can take. She can't take no more, uh, to quote Popeye. And uh, she comes into the room where Jesus is there with Mary and, and others. And she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. So you can almost see the veins in her forehead. So she's pretty upset. Now, I think we've all been in situations like this in life. I think we've been in situations like this in life where we have been the Martha and we have been the Mary. And uh, you ever have someone do something like at a family gathering or doesn't even have to be family or friends or whatever it might be, and somebody just does something and says something that is so weird and hostile and aggressive and inappropriate it's like everybody just looks down and tries to pretend that this person did not just do what they did. Now imagine she comes into the room 
And this is what she says. Uh, imagine what she made Mary feel like. Like this good-for-nothing, lazy person in here doing nothing while I'm doing all of the work. And she shames her sister right in front of the entire group. And as if that isn't enough, she then takes and rebukes Jesus and tells him what he ought to be doing but was not doing. So she corrects him uh, as, as well, uh, telling uh, him to order her to help me. And, uh, and Jesus answered, and he said to her, Martha, Martha, you are so right. What was I thinking? Is that what he said? Whenever God, whenever Jesus, uh, if he does in like a dream or a vision or in prayer, if he repeats your name, uh, uh, sit down. Uh, you know, the old saying, when you've been put down, sit down. It's never a good sign. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. This doesn't have anything to do with Mary. This is you. You've worked yourself into a frenzy here, doing all of this that you're doing and, and uh, getting so upset about it and then trying now to take out your frustrations uh, on, uh, on her and then trying to pull me into uh, what you want me to do here. You are troubled, worried and troubled about many things. Now, if, uh, if Martha... And uh, if she had just, and Martha's a doer, she's a doer, there's no two ways about it. And uh, if she had just done her doing and uh, done it with the right attitude, and then Mary gets to do what she's doing, would have been the picture of peace. This wouldn't even be uh, in the Bible uh, for, for our instruction. So Jesus informs her, listen, you think Mary's wrong, you think I'm wrong, I'm telling you there's something wrong with you and your attitude and what is, is happening here. And then Jesus goes on and he says, but one thing is needed, and that's a plate of tuna fish sandwiches. Now, that's not what he says. That was she was working on, or whatever it might be she was working on. Um, one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part part of sitting at his feet and listening to his instruction. Given the choice between, uh, Jesus is saying, given the choice between having a wonderful hot cooked meal uh, and being left alone in this other room, sitting in a chair by myself while you two were preparing the meal, uh, or having a choice of having uh, somebody sit at my feet and listen to my spiritual instruction, I will always take and prefer and choose somebody sitting at my feet over uh, the, the worship, the adoration, the fellowship over uh, the, the, the Christian uh, service. And so she said, Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. You're trying to pull me in on this. I will never cooperate with what you're asking me to do here. I, I, it will, I will not play any part in taking that away from her. And so the importance of what is a priority to Jesus. And it isn't any accident here that 
um, this entire incident in Luke's gospel, that this, this contrast between Martha and Mary here is it, is it sits following the, the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, where the parable of the Good Samaritan encourages us to not merely be knowers, but to also be doers of God's word. Uh, doers and busy about God's business. But doers have a weakness. And the weakness is the weakness that Martha is showing uh, here in the passage. And, and, uh, and that is to elevate Christian service above the devotional life or the relationship side of Christianity and then everything is, is upside down. It's fascinating that, uh, that whenever, and, and they, they've done studies on this kind of thing and then any time I've ever known uh, about a, a restoration process uh, personally where a pastor crashes and burns for whatever reason, uh, always uh, one of the things that comes out is somewhere in the course of his Christian service, uh, he has begun to neglect, get, neglect the time at Jesus' feet. He gets it upside down, forgetting that Jesus did not call us as Christians because he needed slave labor somehow in the world. He has all of the labor he could ever want in the angelic realm, or he could produce it in any way that he wants. He called us to relationship, and then the service is to come out of that relationship, and her service is not coming out of that, that relationship. And so the warning, I mean, if we ever find ourselves in Christian service, and we're huffing and we're puffing and we're mad at everybody, all those people in the sanctuary, and I'm back here in the kitchen, and getting everything prepared, and setting up these chairs and doing all this kind of stuff, and I get here so early and they just come and they just go and get in their cars and leave and they don't even know what's happening. And so anytime there's, you know, all of this kind of huffing and puffing and getting upset and I'm distracted with much serving, serving's the most important thing that's happening here or, or whatever, I get angry with other people, I even get angry w- with God. Why don't you give us more servants here in this area of whatever and, and then I- I- and become worried as Jesus puts it and troubled about uh, many things is always uh, good for those of us who are doers. And I am a doer. I, there's, n- there's hardly anything I enjoy more in life than a task that is accomplished. It brings me great satisfaction. And, uh, but when all of this agitation and emotion is, is going on, then uh, related to my Christian service, then it's a clear indication, especially here where it's directed toward the, uh, those that have taken a place at Jesus' feet, then I've, I've flipped those priorities. Now, one of the things, uh, things that we have to really rescue both of these women from the stereotypes that get attached to them. And uh, very often we just look at, uh, uh, you know, Martha is uh, likened to this, just this carnal doer and get out of her way. I mean, she's a Christian, but I mean, by the skin of her teeth. I mean, you get on the wrong side of her and she's going to take your head off and, and uh, that she's this kind of a, of a person, not a terribly deeply spiritual person. But earlier in, in Jesus' ministry, when Lazarus had died, she was the first one that came to Jesus when he came to the city of Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead. And she said to Jesus, if you had only been here, 
my brother would not have died. She knew who Jesus was. She knew his power. A little bit later here in Luke's gospel, a little bit later in in the course of things, she is going to find herself in exactly this environment again. And there's no huffing and there's no puffing. There's just joyous service and thrilled to be doing what she is doing in her way uh, for the Lord. In other words, she learned the lesson that she needed to learn here. She lost perspective. We all lose perspective. I certainly have. And so never look at her as like the doer that is just this uh, carnal person and what are you going to do with them? We've got to put up with them because they're Christians. And then, and then we have to rescue Mary from being uh, portrayed as just this, this starry-eyed, uh, you know, uh, uh, never-do-anything kind of person so heavenly-minded that she's no earthly good. And Jesus rescues her from that stereotype, and she is, she is stereotyped in that way very often when he declares there in verse 42, for, uh, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part. It, 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 wa- it wasn't that necessarily that this came any more naturally to her than it did to Martha. We can't uh, assume that. Though she always finds herself at Jesus' feet every time she's mentioned in the Scriptures. But she chose that. In other words, there came a point, perhaps in the, the preparation of the food or whatever's going on in the kitchen, where she realized this is at hand, and now I'm going to choose to move away from this and sit at Jesus' feet. People that develop a devotional or a a, a deep, beautiful, current relationship with God, uh, so often uh, somebody uh, that looks at it uh, might look and say, well, of course they do. That comes naturally to them. They're just naturally one of those people, and I'm naturally one of these people. And then we hide behind uh, the, the excuse and the caricatures of of, of Martha and Mary. But she sat at Jesus' feet not because she didn't have a hundred other things to do herself, but because she esteemed that to be the greatest thing that she could do and then chose to do that. And no one will develop this kind of time at Jesus' feet who does not choose that as a priority in their life in the midst of a million and one things uh, in our in basket, half of which we aren't going to be able to get to. And so uh, it's a f- far more uh, nuanced here than just this is the bossy, uh, carnal Christian who does things, but you've got to have a few of them around in the church. And, and here's the, uh, the dreamy, natural, uh, spiritual person and, uh, uh, that uh, only does this because it's the, uh, their personality. Nothing, uh, uh, nothing about that is true. Uh, at all. In chapter 11, let's venture into it a little bit. Now, it came to pass as Jesus was praying, and the prayer life of Jesus is emphasized in the gospel according to Luke, because the gospel according to Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. 
and uh, Matthew's gospel uh, emphasizes his deity. Uh, Mark's gospel, his uh, or his his the fact that he's he's the Messiah. Uh, Mark's gospel that he is the servant. Luke the, uh, his humanity, and then uh, John his deity. And so here he is praying. He's praying in a certain place. And when he had ceased, so the disciples waited until he had ceased his praying. That then one of the twelve said to him, Lord, teach us to pray uh, as John also, John the Baptist, taught his disciples. So it's a beautiful request. They're watching the prayer life of Jesus, and something about it, they've never quite uh, seen anything like it. And, and this also enlarges our understanding of John the Baptist's ministry in terms of his disciples, that he discipled them on a lot of levels, including uh, how to pray. And now the disciples say, we'd like you to teach us about prayer, uh, just as John taught his, uh, his disciples. And Jesus' answer uh, uh, here begins in verse 2 in what is known as uh, the Lord's Prayer. And so he said to them, when you pray, say. Uh, when Jesus teaches this very same thing earlier in his ministry, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel, he declares, after this manner, pray. In other words, this prayer can be prayed uh, verbatim, word by word, and it's a great prayer. The only thing that, uh, the, uh, that God condemns is vain repetitions. Is, uh, I, I spent a little time in Roman Catholicism, and I could fly through uh, uh, Hail Marys and Our Fathers uh, as fast as any uh, 12-year-old kid could. And uh, they were vain repetitions. I never connected with a single word that I was saying. I'm not saying that's true of all Catholics or all Catholics that, that age, but it was certainly true of me. So there's nothing wrong with praying the prayer exactly uh, as it is. But it is all, also important when Jesus says, after this manner pray, that it is a model for prayer. And, uh, and here I think there's something like seven things that Jesus teaches us to pray as his disciples uh, and that we are to pray uh, at the start of each day in order for uh, us to be fully prepared uh, for that, uh, that day. Sometimes people think that, you know, the only true prayers are prayers that are structureless. They are whatever thought comes to my mind at the moment, and I'm all for e extemporaneous prayer, where you get up and you don't have a written out prayer and read the prayer out and, and all of that, or have the whole prayer planned or whatever. You're just going to get up and whatever the Lord kind of gives you to pray that's right for the moment, then, then you pray that. But there's nothing wrong with, with some structure related to prayer uh, as well as, as this, this mod, uh, model or this, this pattern uh, is given. And so uh, these, these seven things that Jesus knows we need to talk over with our Heavenly Father at the start of, of each day. It doesn't mean that this needs to be the entirety of our prayer life, these, that we only pray these seven things to God on a daily basis. But we can enlarge uh, in all directions uh, uh, upon this prayer, but these things we have a need to pray uh, on a daily basis. And he begins it 
And the way that I like to use it is to just kind of, as I'm praying, is just to savor each section of it. So you've got the opening line, our Father in heaven. And so this is, begins with who we are praying to, our Father. Now, in the ancient world it was more so, but it's just about equally true today. The ancient deities were deities you could never please. They were always angry with you. You were having to offer to them your, uh, all kinds of things in order to keep these deities from crushing you. They were a foe. They were an enemy. And here Jesus uh, tells us that when we begin to pray to God in heaven, that we are praying to uh, a heavenly Father. And, and that is the one that we're lifting the prayer up to. There is also, might go in your mind as you're just praying like this, the realization where you would look, it would prompt your, your thoughts to say, uh, a, a, by virtue of the fact that we're able to call him Father. Why are we able to call him Father? We've been born into his family. He's made us a part of his family. Thank you for saving me, Father. Thank you for the price that was paid in order that, that I might be saved. And so the relationship that is there, when we turn to him, we are turning to a father in the best sense of the word. Now some people have terrible fathers uh, growing up, and that's why the prayer goes on to say, our father in heaven, uh, for, you know, for several reasons, but at least that. He, if you had a terrible father, you don't take all that baggage and put it on uh, 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 our, our heavenly father in, in this uh, relationship. He is an entirely different kind of father. And the ideal father that, that you would find in Judaism under uh, the law of Moses or in, it would be one who is righteous, one who is good, one who is gracious, one uh, who is uh, fair, one who is loving, who, and is this wonderful combination of all of those things. So our father, that's who we're talking to. So we begin to, to pray and, uh, and recognize it's a conversation, our father in heaven. Which tells me is that in heaven, it makes me realize that, um, that he is greater than every prayer need and prayer request I'm going to bring to him. He is in heaven. Uh, our Father which art in heaven, greater than any, any need or any supplication that we're going to bring in prayer. And so uh, there is that uh, reminder of who we're praying to. And then there's the expression of worship that comes next. Hallowed be your name. And this is just to ascribe holiness to God, to recognize him as a holy God and to worship him for who he is. What a wonderful time of worship we had in song tonight, wasn't it? Just doing that. And here's a place where as we're just kind of going through the thing, you can say, hallowed be thy name and have it be meaningful to you, but just to even stop and, and head into worship. Lord, I, I bless you. I praise you for how uh, good you are. Thank you for how good you ha have been to me. Thank you for your power. Thank you that you're righteous. Thank you uh, that you're sure. Thank you for your grip upon my life. And, and then there's that element of just praise. Hallowed be your name. Your name represents his nature. I worship you for who and what you 
you are. There's no one like you in the whole world, and you're my Father in heaven, and I worship you. And then the third thing, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, uh, even as it is in heaven. And here we have uh, the request for God's kingdom to come into the world and for his will to be done uh, on the earth to the same degree in the same way that it's being done uh, in heaven. And this is the daily reminder that uh, this could be the day that he comes and begins that entire progression with the rapture of the church, takes us into heaven, and then moves things forward then to the kingdom age where his, uh, 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 his kingdom has come and his will is being done on earth even as it is in heaven. And, uh, and how I love that reminder as I uh, would pray this prayer that today might be the day. I'm, I'm asking him, Lord, let this be the day that this takes place. And then there comes, uh, after all of these, uh, these things that really set our spiritual perspective on things, then there is the supplication, the request. Give us day by day, or this day, our uh, daily bread. So the recognition of, uh, Lord, provide for my daily needs today. And food, I need food, I need shelter, I need clothing, I need you to provide uh, for me uh, uh, today. And you notice that it's a daily uh, prayer. There's a, there's a sense in which God wants us to live our Christian life on a, a daily basis, on a one day at a time basis. And the prayer uh, brings it out here. This day, our daily uh, uh, bread. And, uh, and he wants us to get to, to look at the, the, uh, that section of our life that is that, uh, that next 8 to 12 or 16 hours that are in front of us and, and to make that our focus. There are a lot of people that they live their entire lives in the future. Uh, they live their entire lives for the day that they're going to retire or the day that they're going to get to do this vacation, and as soon as that vacation is over, then the next vacation or special event gets booked, and they just go from all of these future events to future events, and they get to the end of their life, and they never enjoyed life on a daily basis, and recognizing God's hand, His provision in our lives on a daily basis. And, and that's, uh, uh, that's one of the things that that this is, uh, accomplishes within our lives. Lord, uh, w- w- I, need, we, uh, I need these things. I ask you to provide them to me so that when he does provide them, we recognize that they came uh, from his hand. It, it, you think, I, I, I ate a lot of meals as a pagan. And, uh, and I've eaten a lot of meals as a Christian. And... I'll tell you, I never enjoyed uh, a meal as a pagan, no matter how great the meal was, the way I enjoy a meal as a Christian. To sit down and to recognize this is daily bread that I asked for, and this has come from God to provide for me, and how humbling it is to to realize that, and what a blessing it is to recognize it as a gift uh, from Him. And then he goes on, 
in uh, in the fifth thing that's listed here of uh, uh, of uh, and forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us or who has sinned against us. So beginning the day by freshly receiving God's forgiveness. Isn't that wonderful? The Bible talks about elsewhere about the fact that his mercies are new every morning. Here we are the first Sunday of 2021. And, uh, and so we have these reference points, don't we, in terms of fresh starts. But God knows we don't just need a fresh start on January 1st. We need a fresh start every single day. Well, not you. I do. I know that you guys have attained to a higher spirituality. But isn't it wonderful to realize that to, to start that day now, not carrying the, the condemnation of our previous failures, even the day before, into the new day and asking him for forgiveness for the sins that we had committed, being able to start with a fresh uh, uh, slate to head into the day. And if you look at that and you say, oh, you're just going to produce a bunch of weak Christians who are going to use grace as an excuse to sin, then, uh, then you don't know the power of grace. And what happens is nobody will be able to do that for any length of time who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit except that His grace humbles us to such a degree that we will long to obey Him in a, in a greater measure than, than, uh, than would otherwise be uh, the case. And so we're freshly conscious of His grace, humbled by His grace and His forgiveness uh, in our lives, and then under the influence of His forgiveness, then choosing to uh, extend forgiveness uh, to uh, others. And then Jesus closes by saying, pray after this manner, and do not lead uh, us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one or deliver us from evil. And so here is uh, the uh, uh, praying for and preparing ourselves for the spiritual warfare and the temptations that are going to occur as we head into uh, the new day. So the classic kind of example in the scriptures, you remember when Joseph was, uh, Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce him and, um, and he, he uh, d- declares that he could not do this to the, uh, the wife's, to Potiphar and he could not do this to God. And there's never any kind of indication in, in Joseph's decision making in that moment that that he made that decision in exactly that moment with all of the temptations and the power of that temptation. That was something that he had decided long before how he would handle that kind of a situation before it, it came up. And when we spend a little bit of time in this area in our Christian life to start the day in prayer to the Lord, Lord, I know temptations are going to come my way today. Spiritual warfare is going to come my way today. Not an if, it's going to happen. And I choose this morning before I leave this place, the place that you've provided me to live in, before I leave this place, I choose ahead of time, before the decision even needs to be made, I choose to say yes to you and to no to these temptations and the spiritual warfare that I am uh, about to encounter. And so when they then come in the course of the day, we're already ready for them, we're already waiting for them, and our decision has already uh, been made so that we're not 
uh, blindsided uh, by them or making the decision there um, in, in the moment. And so uh, the prayer that he would not lead us into temptation. Of course, Jesus, uh, uh, God will never lead us into temptation. James tells us that uh, uh, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he does not tempt uh, uh, anyone. It's a request that God will help us be successful in, uh, in uh, uh, avoiding unnecessary temptation and successful in the face of temptation that does come through in our life. And again, there is no better way that a person can begin, a Christian can begin a, a day than lifting these things up surely and then whatever we want to add to them uh, to start the day uh, before we head out the door. And one of the things that's invaluable about it is and spending time in prayer to start the day is that the conversation has started. The conversation with God for the day has already begun. And so then when something comes up at 10 o'clock, something comes up at 2 o'clock, something comes up at 3.30, that conversation has already begun between us and the Lord. And when those things happen, we can immediately head in a way that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do that, head right into intimate prayer with Him in our hearts related to the situation. And that's how God wants us to live our, our lives because that's the way that's uh, blessed. I, I, I think one final thing before we uh, leave this alone, all of the personal pronouns in uh, this particular prayer, there's not an I or a me or a my in it. How un-American. Uh, all of the personal pronouns are plural. In other words, when we pray this prayer, we are not only praying for ourselves, but we are also praying for the rest of the body of Christ. It is intercession for my own life, but it is intercession, meaningful intercession, for the rest of the body of, of Christ. And so when I use this as a model for my own prayer, I, in terms of the worship or in the terms of God being greater, the relationship that we have with Him as Father and all the praying related to that to my own life, but that that would be your experience uh, in this day as well. And it's beautiful to realize that we can uh, hardly intercede. Say, what do I pray for this person? Like, okay. I pray they have a good day. I mean, we, we just kind of need a little help to prime the pump. And praying these seven things for any other Christian, as we're praying them for ourselves, uh, and whether praying the prayer verbatim or adding upon it, is a wonderful way to then intercede for all of the same situations and problems and needs that all of us face as Christians in interceding for one another. So we'll stop there tonight, and we'll pick it up in verse uh, 13 uh, next week, Lord willing. Let's stand together. I do want to say that if you're here before we close in prayer, and you are not yet a Christian, you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to do that, because uh, not only the quality of your life here today is affected, but your eternity is, is affected. 
And, uh, and, and so to come to trust in Jesus, to be born again, if you've never done that, we'll be up in front after the service and we'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship uh, with God. If you need prayer for anything tonight, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your instruction. I mean, just really mind-boggling what it is that is in these verses that we've looked at tonight and we see all of our own tendencies in the lawyer. We see all of our own tendencies in uh, the, the priest and in the Levite, our own tendencies in Martha and Mary and, and all there. It's, this is not some obscure, dusty book about uh, people we can't relate to. And we thank you that even as you spoke into their lives this eternal truth, so you have done it tonight through your word. And we're grateful for that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, would you close us? Mm-hmm.